Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the On the Forecheck podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Morgan from OnTheForeCheck.com, and as always, I am joined by the Ralphie's eye to my Red Rider BB gun, Sean C. Smith. Sean. I'm, I'm the eye? You're the eye. I'm gonna get sh- you're going to shoot me out. Yes. Oh, goodness. Wow. I'll take that as a threat, but fine. Whatever. Well, shoot shoot out with takes, with, with solid takes. Okay, that's fine. I'll I'll accept it. I'm willing to I'm willing to go forward with it. I'm not gonna report yes. any uh, harassment in the workplace yet. Uh no, Kate will not have to do more paperwork. <laughs> no, we don't need uh, that. No. Uh but that is a hint to a segment we got coming up today, Sean. You and I. Oh we're gonna yeah, you're right. our t- the top five uh, Christmas movies of all time. That's right. I'm excited. Probably the- Probably the biggest on-air fight you and I will ever have. I don't know. We probably agree. Probably see eye to eye on a lot of things. Makes sense to me. See eye to eye, and as long as we don't have a Red Rider BB gun. Yeah, exactly. Because then one of those eyes will get shot out. Which is what you threatened to do to me earlier, apparently. So that's fine. You know, it is what it is. (laughs) Uh, Hey, the big news in hockey this week is that there's no hockey. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, you know, COVID is a big, uh, big thing right now. NHL, of course, is paused through the end of Christmas break. The Nashville Predators a uh, couple of days ago announced that they're going to pause their season. Uh, I think at last check, there's 14 people in protocol, unless I'm doing that math wrong. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of uh, come out of nowhere again and reared its ugly head. And Sean, it really couldn't have come at a worse time for the Preds because they were on such a hot streak going on too. And now, you know, you're kind of having to think about momentum. Yeah. Well, not only were they on hot streak, but they were on a hot streak, even when dealing with people being on the COVID list. And that's, you know, that's the reality here is they could have, you know, taken, taken their lumps and, and had a couple of down games, but they thrived in the face of it. And uh, it really would have been interesting to see how they perform moving forward, getting players off of that list as well. Um, But unfortunately, um, for the hockey side of things, it's not to be. But fortunately, for the health side of things, I think it's the right call. Yeah, let's and we're going to get into the hockey side of things in just a second, because I do want to there's a couple of questions I have on that. But first, I want to get your take on just how the NHL has handled, you know, the the entire scope of the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, I, I don't think we're debating, you know, pausing the season. I think we both agree in at this stage was the right call. But, you know, I'm kind of talking about the lead up going into it where, you know, some teams were shut down, others weren't. You know, you had some uh, teams that were playing shorthanded, some that were canceled right away. So kind of curious your thoughts on just how the league has handled this situation. You know, I, I'll, I'll speak to this just from sitting at the game against the Avalanche the other night and how, how odd it was to watch that unfold in front of my very eyes. And to know later on what was going on behind the scenes while I was watching the show was, was really interesting. But you notice that the Predators are already coming off of a day of uh, rest, I guess you'd say, on Tuesday after Calgary had its games paused. I think I think that was the right game that got paused. Um, yes. Or maybe. Yeah, because they were supposed yeah. to play here. Yeah. 
Um, so that that game got paused, postponed, however you want to call it, due to Calgary having players in the protocol. So when I, I believe Johansson was already in the protocol and they started adding more players the day before, I was quite surprised that the game was even planning on going ahead. And then, of course, I remember sitting on Thursday uh, waiting for the post-practice or post-morning skate media session um, on a Zoom call, and I was sitting there kind of, you know, thumbing through Twitter as I was waiting, sitting on the, you know, the unstarted Zoom, and I saw Nick Cousins' post about, you know, pause the season, this is ridiculous. Um, and I was, I, I, the first thing I thought was, well, I, I guess they're done skating. We should be getting this thing started. And I was like, now, wait a minute, hold on. You know, he's he seems upset about this. And, you know, sure <laughs> enough. Turned, yeah, turned out to be a pretty good reason. Yeah, it ended up, you know, being being the uh, guy that got added that day. And and so he ends up on the list, and I'm like, goodness, there's so many people on the list now. Surely this is this is the end of the uh, the game, um, you know, for the for the Preds, and they're gonna they're gonna have to postpone a game. Which I'll say, they have not had to have any games postponed even last season due to their own COVID issues. Um, so I was really, you know, it's really unfortunate because I know the players have all taken the steps that they've, every step they can to kind of keep things from getting interrupted. Um, but the, the reality is COVID sneaks in. You start getting players added to the list. I think for sure this Colorado game is going to get postponed. Now, mind you, I know nothing about the avalanche situation COVID-wise. I'm not even, it's not even a blip on my radar. I'm just thinking the Preds are the team with the issue right now this is probably not going to happen. Now I was supposed to drive downtown to cover the game, but I had every assurance at that point that that game was going to happen. So I, I went on downtown. I went in and sat down. I was sitting next to Alex Doherty of A to Z Sports, and we were kind of discussing how it was really weird that none of the pregame things I'd, I'd gotten used to seeing before games was happening. And I, I speak to what I like to call Matt Duchesne alone time, where Matt Duchesne comes and sits by himself on the bench before the uh, – before the game starts. Uh, I've also recently added what, what can be known as Nick Cousins' target practice game where he comes out and does a little bit of stretching and then picks up some of the pucks that are sitting there waiting and tries to hit one of the uh, – get him to land in the face-off circle on one of the dots and, and then throws a couple at the net to see if he makes it. And even then, another new one, and it's, I, I love all of these things. It's these little um, idiosyncrasies that really get me fired up um, you know, when it comes to covering games in person is you do have the chance to just sit there and watch some of the stuff unfold and see the players' personalities is that uh, Philip Tomasino would come, would started coming out and firing pucks down at the net to see if he could make a few in. And so I'd gotten used to reporting. None of those things happened. All of those players were either injured with Matt Duchesne or in the protocol with Tomasino and Cousins. So it was really kind of... Um, off-putting and, and weird for them to not come out. I, I could compare it to when uh, the Predators were playing at the beginning of last season in an empty arena. But what then happened was when the teams came out to start skating, you could tell very quickly that there weren't enough players on the ice for Colorado, which led us to start counting and to see how many guys are actually out there. We came up with 15 skaters, and that is three shy of a full load for a game. And, and it was really shocking to see yeah. such a small number and to keep expecting more guys to come out or, or whatever, but they, they never did. So this all happens. 
mind you. And I, I guess apparently after warmups, they went they went off the ice um, and they took a vote, which I think is weird that they were, you know, to me, this is the, the crux of the issue for me is that they were given the chance to play. And I think any professional athlete, when given the chance to play, even if they are three guys down, they're not going to be like, yeah, you know, we probably better not. I mean, this is a chance to prove that they're a team that can get things done even when things are tough. And they took that opportunity. The Predators, of course, had a lot of players out, but had the luxury of time to make their call-ups to have plenty of people to come in and play in the place of the others. Now, it, it's it's interesting to say that because, yes, a lot of those players are coming from the AHL, but many of them already have NHL experience. So it, it was really, and I know I'm going on for a long time here, but it, it's really it was really odd to then put those pieces together later to hear that they were in fact taking a vote behind the scenes and going through with playing. And I, to me, it seems unfair because you're putting people in a situation, you're giving them the options. You can say you gave them the option, but you're giving them an option when you already know what their answer is going to be. And I don't think that's a very good look. I think, I think what the league needed to do was to be the adult and step in and say, guys, we got too much going on. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to postpone this game. And it, it's. They ended up doing it with. They ended up not doing it the next night with the Blackhawks game either, which is yeah. just bizarre to me. So I, it it just seems like there was more they should have done in order to take care of things. Yeah, and I think I'm looking back at that Avalanche game, and I think they had they played too too short, so they were two skaters short. Um, which is the same number uh, that Carolina was short when they played the Red Wings. Uh, the only difference is Carolina won their game. And they were kind of, I think, the, the first team to sort of play shorthanded. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, again, like you said, players are going to be like, you know what, we're here, we might as well play. Um, you know, if you're a team like the Avalanche, though, and it's, you know, late April and you find yourself one game out of a playoff spot though, are you going to yeah. look back and say, well, yeah, we were given a vote, but you know, why wasn't this canceled? You know, uh, there's other teams that were going through the same thing we did that, you know, pause their season. We played and, you know, look at us, they're going to get a chance to make those up. So, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you think about that and, you know, we, we go back, I think, last season talking about the whole Tim Peel fiasco. Um, when you look at, you know, say an official kind of, oh, I wanted to get a penalty there against this team. And how does that impact something like, you know, uh, the recently legalized sports betting and, and stuff like that? But then you think, okay, well, how does the NHL, you know, say, okay, we're going to stop these games and you can make them up later versus you've got to play these now. Um, how's that going to play out down the road? Like you said, when we're, you know, one point out of a playoff spot or something like that. It's it's not good. And I, I do want to say, and this was a big point of contention, um, being in person for that game. And it was it was really weird because uh, they did start the game with 15 skaters. Um, when we were handed the, the lineup sheet, the rosters that we get for every game that shows the lines, um, there are only 15 players listed. You've got uh, – 10 forwards and five defenders. And midway through the first period, Jack Johnson showed up and joined the team on the bench to make it 16. So the majority of the game, yeah, they, they did have 16, but it was really odd. Um, everybody literally 
everywhere was reporting 16, 16, 16. And we were only counting 15, 15, 15. And we did everything short of scream about it from media row. Um, and then when Johnson joined the game, nobody really made a point of it. Nobody really said anything, but then the numbers did line up, but I, it was, what's fun. And I, I kept this like, this is, this is definitely something, you know, to remember I've, I've got that roster sheet in my hands and it's very odd to see these open spots on their fourth line where all they have is a left winger. <laughs> so, um, it's weird. It was a really odd situation for me. Yeah, and uh, one that's played out in a lot of uh, games around the league. Uh, I think it was uh, the Vancouver game where players were being like pulled during pregame warmups, and yeah, you know, it, it's it's very weird. Um, and that brings us to the Olympics, Sean, because we're talking about hey, when are they going to make up these games? Uh, it sounds like the NHL has. They haven't formally announced it as of this recording, uh, but it's been reported any everywhere that a decision has been made uh, that the NHL is not going to play in the Olympics, which, uh, for lack of a better word, Sean, sucks. Because yeah, you know, I, all of us were really looking forward to it. You know, the, the 2018 games without the NHL just didn't really seem to have the same kind of buzz, same kind of energy to it. And you yeah. know, all I say to that is, thank God the women's tournament was so great because that got the hockey fix in. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, players were really looking forward to this, you know, getting a chance to, you know, represent their country. The fans were really looking forward to this. Um, you you kind of get the feeling if the games were anywhere else but China who has some of the strictest COVID quarantining protocols uh, out of any country in, in the world right now, you get the chance that there might've been more players stepping up and saying, you know, we're willing to tough this out. We're willing to do more testing, but yeah, I mean, you don't blame the players at all for, for backing off when uh, you know, you hear stuff like, Oh, if you, if you test positive, it's like what a three week quarantine or something like that before you can test again. Yeah. And, and not just that, but I mean, you know, you, you get over there, right. I mean, the Olympics are two weeks, <laughs> you yeah. get over there and you get, you get stuck over there and now you're quarantined and you can't leave. You can't travel. Um, you know, I think your family, you're away from yeah. your team. Well, I think too, you've got so many, so many players with, with young children, you know, how long do you really want to be away from your kids? Especially if being away from your kids means being stuck in a hotel room all the way across the, the globe in China. That's not ideal for anybody. So I, I think I agree with you. I think if it, if it, if it was taking place somewhere where there weren't a strict of quarantining protocols, that maybe it would be a little bit different, but as it is, I mean, Gosh, I just I can't imagine being a player and, and, and being faced with that. You know, this is what you might have to do in order to play in the Olympics. And that it just seems like a bit much. But you're right. There's there was definitely a buzz in the air, I think, going into the season with players being excited about playing um, for their countries and, and playing in the NHL to make a case or make a statement to their countries that they should be on the team. Um, you know, I mean, you look at what's happening at the junior level, even with you know, Preds, prospect, Preds prospect Luke Evangelista not making the team, you know, and 
uh, uh, Zach LaRue not making the team and saying he's going to make a, he's going to do everything he can to make them regret it. That's the kind of fire you want to see out of people going into this regular season, you know, to kind of make a point that they should be on an Olympic roster. You're going to get some um, inspired and elevated performances when that's kind of on the line. And now that's not really on the line. No. Yeah. You want to represent your country. I mean, that's a pride thing and on the biggest stage because, you know, everybody was saying it's like, Oh, well, you know, if players really wanted to represent their country, they would just go to the world juniors or not the world juniors, but, Oh, you know, there, there's the world championships that no one wants to go to. And it's like, yeah, because it's the world championships in Prague in front of like 400 people, as opposed to the Olympic games where literally every single country is watching, Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's not the same thing. Um, yeah. But you have to kind of also talk about the uh, the talk about how well this worked out for the NHL, who probably didn't want the players there to begin with. And yeah. that kind of leads into the are you know, not being surprised that the NHL hasn't come out and said, you know, we're canceling the all star game uh, from reports from Greg, Greg Wyshynski saying that the league is going to push forward with the games. It's kind of makes you think it's like, Oh yeah. You know, NHL wanted this. Well, it happens to really benefit the NHL. Um, you know, and that's, it's one of those things, you know, I, I'm a teacher. I make no secret of that. And we do have things like fall break and winter break and spring break and all that good stuff that comes along with my exceptionally high pay grade. Um, that was sarcasm out there for anybody uh, who didn't get it. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where if you have weather, if you have storms, if you have things like that and you start taking snow days, you start taking more days and you're allotted in a calendar year. Uh, as you get to spring break, you start to hear whispers of, well, we could just take a couple of days of spring break and go to school and we'd be able to make all this up. So I think there's a bit of that nefarious, like, well, we've got these three weeks off for the Olympics. <laughs> if we have to make up some games, that might be a good time. Well, I'm, I'm also talking about, like, even before that, you know, there was, like, the whole sponsorship fight between the NHL and uh, the Olympic Committee. You know, you know, it kind of felt like the league never really wanted this them there to begin with. And just, you know, COVID and some of these cancellations kind of gave them the the ammo to be like, well, you know, be best if we back out. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably what happened is they, they didn't want it to begin with, like you said, and the opportunities kind of presented itself to make it really, I mean, at this point it's a no brainer to say, Hey, don't go. But then to turn around and say, well, we're going to make up these games at home. Now, if they, here's the thing. If we get into like, you know, I don't know, the middle of January and things have cleared up a lot and you're not having the massive COVID issues that have been happening, I think it's a lot easier to make the argument like, hey, you know, since we're not going to the Olympics, we could probably make up some of these games. But to say it like dead in the middle <laughs> of, of, of what's going on right now, we're still having the All-Star game, we're still doing this, that's bad optics. It is. You know what's been good optics, though, Sean? Uh, the Tell fact me. that the Predators have played so well through all of this nonsense. Uh, seven straight wins going into the holiday break. That includes uh, two wins with basically a roster that 
looks like year 10 on your NHL 22 GM mode. Uh, just a lot of randomness everywhere. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, Sean, I think it is something to say that, and I mentioned, I brought this point up on another podcast. Like if there was ever a team to survive like chaos, not just survive, but go through like this much chaos in, you know, a season in terms of rosters and stuff and thrive. Isn't it yeah. this Nashville predators? Like, aren't they, you know, the style they play, the mentality they kind of have throughout the organization. Isn't this like, you know, completely up their alley. Yeah. I mean, th- this is, we talked, they've been talking like getting back to the predator way, right? Yeah, you know, this is it. Yeah, this is it. This is. Hey, look, it, it doesn't matter who's out there, uh, as long as you're on the Predators team, and you're wearing gold, or, or at least you got a, a saber toothed cat on your on your jersey. We expect you to be hitting somebody every opportunity you get. We expect yeah. you to do this every time you're on the ice. We expect the other team to start to fear that you're they're going to be hurt every time they go into the corners, and, and that's that's been happening with this team. Again, it doesn't matter who's out there. And when, and when I say it doesn't matter, I'm not just talking about AHL guys. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about, oh, you know, Matthew Olivier came up from the Admirals and he's put hits on dudes. I'm talking about, you know, talking about Philip Tomasino going out there and doing it and Ellie Tolvanen and, and all of these other guys who you don't necessarily think of guys who are going to go out and just absolutely smash their bodies into someone else. And, and they're all doing it from the top of the roster to the bottom. And man, I, I love to watch that kind of hockey, and I've I've noticed. I think it was ah, it was on the, it was on one of the comments on one of the articles, one of the game recaps, and I don't remember which one. Um, it may have been one that Eamon wrote, but and I never get this because I'm of course always speaking to the Predators players after the game. But it was right. talking to the opponents, and and they were saying, yeah, they definitely finished every check they had. They definitely wore us down out there. You know, they, every time I was on the ice, I knew somebody was coming for me. And, and that's that whole, what I like to call the Dale Earnhardt mentality. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't have to do the thing that everyone's afraid you're going to do as long as they think you're going to do it every time. And that's enough to put people, <laughs> put people in a position where they're afraid of something happening. They're going to make a lot more mistakes than they normally would, and they're going to be a lot less willing to go into dangerous areas than they normally would. And that's, that's exactly what you want. You don't just want, you want to be able to back it up, but you want people to fear what you're going to do when you're on the ice with, with the Predators, right? It's a real throwback to some of those quote unquote gritty underdog teams of, you know, sort of the, the mid to late 2000s and early 2010s. Yeah. where the Predators didn't really have a big cast of offensive stars. But, you know, they, they had the goaltending, they had the defense, but they were really carried by four lines of people who just in any situation would, would go out and play brilliant two-way hockey. And you talk about the identity and, you know, finishing checks and making it tough to play against – it goes on both ends of the ice, you know, on offense, you know, even if you don't have the puck, if it's in, you know, the opponent's zone, you're forechecking hard. You are going after the puck. You are trying to make them fall into a trap and make a mistake in their own zone. Uh, or, you know, no easy first pass, no easy clear out. You're pushing them hard. You're checking them into the boards after they clear the puck. 
And then on defense, just, you know, making it physically impossible to get to a high danger chance. I mean, you know, we, we saw, you know, Miko Rantanen, one of, one of the toughest guys in the NHL, both, you know, just in terms of size and physicality, getting absolutely clobbered, you know, by, by guys like Phil Myers and Dante Fabro every time he tried to go into the net, which is kind of his bread and butter. That's the type of play that really gives me vibes of those old school Nashville Predators teams. And Sean, that's interesting because that's something that I didn't see from this team for the past handful of seasons was just, it didn't, it didn't really look, they just kind of look like, you know, a standard, you know, cookie cutter team where, you know, you try to get like, you know, two high powered offensive lines and two checking lines. And then, you know, you know, four decent defensemen and then, you know, kind of just two random guys and it didn't work. And we talked about it on on podcasts where it didn't seem like the predators were playing with any sort of style. Um, It didn't, it looked like they were a team that were like caught between who they wanted to be and who they used to be. This is the first year that I'm actually watching the predators in a very long time and seeing it's like, you know what? I know exactly how this team wants to play. And that's a good thing. And you look at the standings. I mean, the Preds are second in the central one game out of the best record in the West. And this is why, like, this is a team that knows how they want to play. And even if you had a situation like where Philip Forsberg went out uh, for, you know, a couple of weeks and obviously, you know, you're losing Granlund, Johansson, uh, to, to COVID and Duchesne to an injury. Those are like three of your top four scores. It doesn't matter because the other players on the team know what the role of each player is. And that's yeah. how the Predators can can take a game like those last two where they're missing half their team and still go out there and thrive. And it's because yeah. of how they want to play the game. They have an identity and they're sticking to it this year. Well, you, you got to think too. You, you, and I got a couple. You, you've brought up some interesting points, Nick. First thing I'll say is this: you know, you play a team like, say, Edmonton. You know who Connor McDavid is, and you know what he can do. You know who Leon Drysaddle is, and you know what he can do as well. These are known entities on the team. This, we got to deal with this guy and this guy. But when you're playing against the Predators here recently. It doesn't like somebody, it doesn't matter who they are or what the name on the back of their jersey says. If they're wearing a predator sweater, they're going to hit you. And that's it's I don't even know who that guy was, but he just smashed me into the boards. You know, and that's I think that's the interesting thing is not a lot of other guys on the Oilers are going to come and do Connor McDavid things to you. Um, wearing an Oilers jersey. It's it's basically Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle. That's what's going to happen. But on the Predators, every there's 18 missiles out there, and they're all guided toward you. And you know that when you step onto the ice. So it's not like, well, i got to look out for this one guy, or I have to make sure that I stay you know, a little, little uh, closer to the middle of the ice when this guy's out there. Or maybe don't go into the, into the corners when I see uh, Tanner Janot. It's every dude. Every dude is going to put a hit on you, and it's, they're going to make you think twice about where you're going and what you're doing with the puck. That's, that's a huge thing. And, and I'll say this too, you know, speaking of being on the forecheck, I mean, why do you think that the SB Nation website that covers the Predators is called on the forecheck? 
it's because that was this team's identity for such a long time of being a hard four checking team. And it's, it's interesting because if you think about the, the bulk of people who came to the website and started paying attention to the website after the cup run or because of the cup run, it didn't really make a lot of sense for a few years there. But now it does, right? I just thought it was a fun name. Yeah, well, it's, that's not. It's not just a fun name. A lot of the other websites do have fun names that, that are a play on things about the team. But in this team, short history, especially at the time of the founding of the website, you got to think about what the team was known for. They certainly weren't known for making it really deep in the playoffs. They certainly weren't known for having a bunch of Stanley Cup banners. They now, I mean, if you made the thing now, it might be some joke about banners. But back then, all this team did was stay on the forecheck. The Predators were always on the forecheck. And that's why this website's called what it is. So it's, it's good to see them getting back to that identity because I think it's an identity that um, – I think a lot of people can get behind it. I heard I heard someone on a on a, the other team's broadcast. I don't remember which game it was. Call the the Predators the something about the most pleasant surprise in the NHL this season, and it's nice to hear things said like that outside of Nashville. Yeah, there's a couple of points I, I want to still make on this uh, topic of discussion. There's also a couple of players in particular uh, that I want to give a shout out to. We're going to get to that in a second. Uh, but first, Sean, guess what time it is? Oh. Um, it's it's trivia time, buddy. Trivia time. All right. Are you ready? So this is this is kind of Christmas themed. Okay. Well, sort of. Okay. Uh, it's still hockey related. All right. All right. So uh, flashback to December 23, 2000. Last game before the Christmas break that year. David Legwand, he made NHL history by becoming the first player to ever score a penalty shot goal in overtime. First player ever in league history. Who did the Predators beat that day? Which team? All right. I'm going to give you a second to think about it. Okay. Give me your answer in just a couple of seconds. Okay. All right, Sean, before the break. Uh, I asked you all the way back, December 23rd, 2000, the last game before Christmas that year, David Legwand made NHL history by becoming the first player to ever score a penalty shot goal in overtime. Who did the Preds beat that day? I'm going to say with 0% certainty that it was Buffalo. You had the state right. Oh. It was the New York Rangers. So close. There's a game yeah, at so Madison far. Square Garden. Mm. Yeah, David Legwand, uh, first player in NHL history to ever score a goal on a, off a penalty shot in overtime. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, uh, about a decade or so later, happened again for the Predators, this time Philip Forsberg against St. Louis. So uh, yeah. kind, of a, kind of a good full circle moment. Do you know who the goalie was for the Rangers that day? I would assume. Mike Richter, maybe Dan Blackburn. One of those. I don't have that in front of me right now. I'm curious sometimes, you know, we had the, when Novak scored his first goal the other day, it was really interesting that, you know, for example, it was against Marc-Andre Fleury in the United Center. It's, you know, it's interesting when it's, you know, oh, hey, this, this, this is my first goal and it was against, this Hall of Fame goalie in a very, you know, 
<laughs> very well-known facility as opposed to like, you know, oh yeah, it was uh, against, uh, just, it was their backup. They just called him up from the AHL and it was his only <laughs> appearance. And, he he was know, the e-bug, the emergency yeah. backup that day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's, it's interesting to me when, when that kind of stuff happens. So I was just curious yeah. if, if you knew off the top of your head who it was, but it's okay. I did not. I would have lost that trivia question, but you know, maybe one day I'll get one of these trivia questions right. Hey, it's the thought that counts, right? My record's got to be zero for zero, zero for everything. I think. Oh no, you've done better than that. One for fifteen. Um, you know, John, we we kind of left on a discussion about you know team identity. And, um, you know, that kind of stuff and how well the Preds were doing with players stepping up. There, there's two players in particular that I want to mention from this past week. Two guys that I thought were the stars of the week. You know, you know, we always we all always talk about how UC Saros is on fire. We always talk about Roman Yossi. Philip Forsberg right now is on an incredible hot streak. You know, those guys have stepped up as well and they deserve their due. But two guys I really want to highlight, Colton Sissons and Tanner yes. Janot. Yes. Those are two guys who had a fantastic week. I I would have to say that agree isn't a strong enough word. And, and you know, I don't want to steal your thunder on this, but I could say a lot of things about both of those players. Um Big time. And uh, I'd, I'd rather hear what you have to say first. Well, I was going to say, like, all I have to do is kind of read the stat line from those two games. And it kind of tells the story on its own. Colton Sisson's 48 minutes and 17 seconds of ice time. Remember, in two games, two yeah. games, uh, one goal and three assists in those two games. Uh, Tanner Janot, 46-51 ice time in those two games two goals and one assists, you know, this was, these are not guys that are just quote unquote minute munchers. They went out there and stole the game. Like they went out there and, you know, they're, they're citizens in Janot, you know, they're killing penalties. They're out there in defensive zone shifts. They're out there on offensive zone shifts. You know, they, they each got some valuable power play time with a lot of people out and it's just kind of kind of goes to throw you, especially Colton Sissons, you know, with all the talk about, you know, how Mikhail Grandlin's had a revival year and Duchesne has had a revival year. And, you know, kind of all these up and coming players like Tomasino and Tolvanen, even Tommy Novak, you know, kind of coming up through the system. It is really easy to overlook how important Colton Sissons has been to this team for the past several years. You know, we talk about him, you know, kind of stepping up and becoming the guy, you know, kind of becoming the number one center. This isn't the first time this has happened. No. Remember back in the Stanley Cup finals, what was the joke after that? One C Colton Sissons. Yep. We always joked he's like, hey, one C Colton Sissons outplayed one C Sidney Crosby for that entire playoff series. So this is a guy, even though he's kind of found his niche as, you know, the fourth line center or, you know, in the case of the third line or the herd line, you know, the third line center, whatever you want to call it. This is a guy who's continually, whenever the Predators have had their backs against this wall, whenever they've been shorthanded, whenever they needed someone to kind of step up and shoulder a bigger role, 
Colton Sissons has always been that guy. He has. And, and you know what's interesting? If you, like everybody likes to talk about contracts, right? right. Um, you know, you want to talk about, oh, we've got these two big $8 million contracts and Matt Duchesne and, and Ryan Johansson and their the term is so long and everything. And then Colton Sissons, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the contra- contract tracker right now. His, uh, his deal goes through the same time period that Duchesne's does. He's, he's signed essentially to this team forever or through the 2025-2026 season. Oh, but he's a much smaller cap hit, but still. Well, but that's the thing. That's what people complained about when he signed that deal was, oh, the term, the term, the term. It's so long, but the, it's, it's looking like a pretty good deal right now because how long has this guy been on this team and done everything they've needed him to do when they've needed him to do it? You know, and not just come in. Okay, we just need, look, we just need you to come in and play. We're going to have the first line center back in a couple of games. No, he comes back in and puts on a damn show. And, and that's and that's the thing for me is that whenever he's asked to step in and do something, he doesn't just step in and do it. He does it good enough that it makes you question why he's not doing it somewhere else, if that makes sense. If he's this good as a first-line center, he's doing this well, you know, playing in this type of role um, with the, you know, Olivier Genos of the world, why, you know, why is some other team not trying to get him away to play as a, as a first-line center? And you, you wonder why did they protect him in the expansion draft? It's because this is what he can do, and he does it exceedingly well. He also wore, he also wore the, an A um, in, in the absence of Mikhail Granlund. Uh, and, and that, to me, you know, th- this is who he is. He's an incredibly strong player, but he also has an incredible character, and he's a leader in the locker room. And I think a lot of guys look up to him and respect him. And I think that wearing that A was a long time coming. I was surprised that he wasn't wearing one this season anyway, although I will say they've reduced the number of people wearing them at any given time on this team. Yeah, I have a feeling that's not going to be the the last time Colton Sissons wears an A. No. Um, but, you know, so. that just goes to show you, it's like he's not wearing the A, but, you know, you you can't complain against anybody who is wearing the A this year. I mean, Eckholm nope. has been a fantastic locker room leader all around. Um, you know, Forsberg has has worn it at times, and you know we we know, you know he's well respected in the locker room. Granlund is that guy also. So you know, mm-hmm. the leadership has been fantastic for the Preds, and it just goes to show you, you know, guys like Sissons who really have bought in to I think the direction that the Preds are wanted to go to buy in was kind of the big word um, for a long time during that transition from uh, LaViolette to Hines. You know, the other guy of that equation is Tanner Janot too. And it's interesting because even though Tanner Janot last year kind of burst onto the scene, didn't it seem like there was still some shred of doubt like, okay, is this just one guy having an epic season of all epic seasons where everything's going right? Or is this who Tanner Janot is going to be long-term? And, you know, obviously he's got a long career ahead of him. He's only 24, and, you know, who knows what's going to happen down the road. But everything I've seen from Tanner Janot this year is that he is going to be a fantastic middle six player for the Predators for a very long time. And, you know, the style of play, you know, we know 
We know he loves to hit. We know he loves to kind of press the issue a little bit when the other team has the puck. We know he's a spark plug. But I think the thing with Janot is he's got enough skill that he can really sort of be that trump card on a high line. You know, you know, God forbid anything happens to like, you know, the first line. He's a guy that you could realistically kind of go out there and be, you know, sort of a one line power forward, you know, not unlike Tom Wilson was with Alex Ovechkin and Nick Backstrom. Yeah, I mean, and he's that guy. And I think Jano is kind of proving, especially these last few weeks, that the Predators have found another really good middle six piece. Well, and I'll say this, this, this dude, like, I, I don't know, you know, he burst onto the scene last season and, and what drew everyone's attention right away was just the physical specimen that he is and what he was able to do to other grown men on the ice was phenomenal. Um, but, and, and, you know, the other person I want to give a shout out to here um, in a minute, of course, Carl Taylor, um, yeah, boy. When you said, yeah, my boy, Carl Taylor, when you said, you know, there was still some doubt at the beginning of the season. If you had asked Carl Taylor if there was any doubt, he would have told you there was no doubt in his mind that um, <laughs> that Tanner Janot is going to be something big in the NHL. And it's it's it. I feel like I've said this enough, and a lot of a lot of people have have said this enough. And it was actually Carl Taylor that pointed this out to me when I I made the comment about how he was undrafted the NHL level. He said he was actually undrafted all the way down to the junior hockey level. You know, he has never been drafted. He's always been an undrafted guy coming into every league he's been in, and he has earned every one of the contracts he's gotten. And that goes from junior hockey to the American Hockey League all the way up to the NHL. And not just to earn that contract, but then to be able to be protected by the Predators over Cali Yarncroke in the expansion draft. Um, You know, I think it speaks volumes for what they knew they had in him, where there may have been doubt, and he's done everything he's needed to do to prove to everyone that, yeah, not only did I deserve that contract, but I definitely deserve to be protected over Callie Yarncroke because I don't think you're getting out of Callie Yarncroke what you're getting out of Tanner Janelle. I don't think there's, uh, you can't really make a comparison. And we can talk about the, we can talk about the Swedish Army knife all we want, and that's fun and fine and dandy, but. Um, I mean, I think it's important to note that, I mean, Yarn Croak was fantastic too. I just think there are two different types of players, but but filling a very similar role. Yeah. But this is the style of player they needed to play the style of game that they're playing. Not to say that Yarn Croak couldn't have played hard minutes and, and, uh, you know, done a lot of the, the physical stuff as well, but. Tanner Janot, the reason he's stuck at every level he's been at, the reason he got onto a junior team in the first place is because he showed up in just exquisite physical condition. The man, you know, takes care of his body. He takes care of his equipment. In other words, you know, he's not just making sure that his skates are sharp and his and his stick's not going to break. He's making sure that his body's durable and strong enough to do whatever he needs it to do. And, you know, by showing up at that level and being a big guy and an in-shape guy, that got him onto a a junior hockey team. And then doing the same thing at the AHL level and then doing the same thing at the NHL level. And the the Carl Taylor philosophy that I've, I've spoken about at length, you know, Carl Taylor gave him and helped him round out his game to when he got to the NHL, he wouldn't be able to stick. And that's exactly what happened. That's To me, that's got to be 
Carl Taylor's greatest NHL success story so far is Tanner Janot getting up and getting a chance and staying there. Well, that's not Carl Taylor's only NHL success story. Uh, no, it's not. Last week. You know, I know, I know you want to give him some praises, so I'll kind of leave this to you. But it really is incredible, you know, how he and Scott Ford and Scott Nickel, you know, kind of jumped behind that bench with what did it wind up being like maybe five hours notice yeah, and, and maybe. sort of take the reins and kind of keep the Predators as quote unquote normal as possible through not one, but two games. Yeah. And, and it was, it was really funny because I go back to that, uh, that zoom call we were talking about earlier before the Colorado game. And it was a really odd zoom call. We got Roman Yossi. There were maybe three questions and then whoever was running uh, the Zoom, and I can't recall who it was, um, one of the communications people with the team, just kind of made the comment, well, if there's nothing else, that's that's all for now. And Dan Hynos went added to the COVID protocol, coaching decisions are still <laughs> And then click, Zoom was over, and you're like, wait, what? Hold wait, on. Hold the wait, phone. Back up. Back up. <laughs> it was, it was clarify no. clarify that last part. Yeah. No time to ask questions. No time to get any more information. And that, that tells you that at like noon – they still had no idea what how things were going to play out. And that's 12 o'clock noon before a 7 o'clock game. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it was probably about, you know, five hours for this. Okay, you know, Carl, you're going to have to do this. Um, you know, and, and it's definitely made for a strange circumstance. But you know, let's, let's be realistic here. Carl Taylor is someone whom I think a lot of people were – okay, I see a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people like, say – people that cover the Milwaukee Admirals, people who are familiar with the organizational depth and the Predators system were probably saying, hey, Carl Taylor's a great coach. They should really look at him for the NHL job. But at that point, he hadn't been with Milwaukee for very long. So wow. it, it's it's not surprising that they didn't. It's not like they passed him over. It's like they're saying, well, let's, let's see what he can do with a few more years. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people were saying, well, when this, this Heinz guy blows over, then that's when we'll bring in Carl Taylor. But Hines is having success, and he's helped this team build that identity. And I think a lot of the reason he's been able to build that identity with the team is that he's got a lot of buy-in with the players. Um, I, I like the way he talks about mentality and mental state and you know not getting too high when you win, not getting too low when you lose, but taking the lessons and moving on. Those are great things. I think that's easy for a player to latch on to. Um, so I don't want to say like, well, let's get rid of Heinz. I'm sure that would make the, the Facebook crowd really happy. But, um, you know, what I'm saying is my concern now is that you've had Carl Taylor show up, be visible and have success at the NHL level. Um, and you say, well, but that was, that's John Heinz team and that's John Heinz system, but they're running the same system in both, in both teams. You know, it's, the idea is that you can bring players up if you need to, and they don't have to learn how things go at this level. They're running the same system. So these are systems that, that Carl Taylor's using, and a lot of these players are guys that I think we counted that there are nine guys that played against Colorado that had been coached by Carl Taylor at the AHL level. So you're looking at about half the team that's had experience with this coach. So, yeah, they're, it's Heinz's team, but it's Carl Taylor the one. Carl Taylor's the one coaching them. And this is the guy that, that they know very well. Some of them have only played for Carl Taylor. So you have that success behind the bench. It looks really good. And then to turn around and do it 
I mean, it looks really good against Colorado, which let's be honest, that was not really Colorado, just like this was not really the National Predators with their full force. But, of course not, yeah. you know, you go into Chicago the next night and you play the Blackhawks. You're legitimately playing the Chicago Blackhawks. Granted, they've had some coaching turmoil too, but you're playing a real NHL team with all NHL players. And everybody's there that's supposed to be there and everything. So you turn around and beat them too, right? It's kind of a big deal. So my, my concern now, and when I say my concern, this is my selfish personal concern because I want to see Carl Taylor with this organization. My concern is how appealing does he look to all of these teams out there with coaching vacancies? Right. I mean, there's got to be a lot of people that are probably going to be knocking on his door, you know, if not maybe this summer, but certainly down the road. Well, and that's, and that to me, you know, he's already back with Milwaukee. They're still playing games. They talked to him. I saw a quick interview, quick little interview with him. And he said, you know, he's like, it was, it was really exciting for us. He's like, of course we want NHL jobs. So it was really awesome to be there behind an NHL bench and to have success because we want NHL jobs. And that, if that's not a signal out there to uh, anybody listening that, Hey, NHL people, here's a good coach that can come in and win games for you. Um, I mean, if that's not the best advertising you can have, <laughs> I don't know what is. Yeah, should I have a David Poyle come out and be like, look, you're going to lose this game like 50 to one. Just yeah. like, do it. <laughs> Just tank this game. Act confused behind the bench the whole time. <laughs> Go into the corner and cry. <laughs> oh, man. I love Carl Taylor so much. It's, yeah. it's insane. He's, he's, he's a an incredible piece. person. A uh, piece that hopefully uh, will be in Nashville uh, for a while. Hell, John Ides has done a fantastic job. Uh, Sean, it's Christmas time. It is. And you know what the best part of Christmas time is? Um, Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. That's the best part of Christmas. That is absolutely. I was thinking, though, Christmas movies. Oh, that too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You're right. So, uh, yeah, we we had a little debate. We are going to go through our top five Christmas movies. Uh, Interesting to see each other's list. We did not reveal them beforehand, so we don't know if there's going to be some overlap or if this is going to turn into a giant on-air brawl. I'm not sure. We, we've had very, very minimal discussion about the movies on these lists. And yeah. so um, I know that Nick has some very strong movie opinions. I'm probably a little more timid in defending my movie opinions. I don't get as, uh, as much ownership in these movies, but we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. All right. So how, how do we, do we want to just go through uh, the full list one at a time? Oh, let's just go. Let's start from five and take turns. Let's go. Okay. Do it, you know, like you want to start and then I'll do like five and then my four, then you do your four and then three. Right. And then... Uh, number five. This is the first one that people are going to go like, oh, come on. I'm pulling this out of left field, but it is a classic. The Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay. I'm not, I'm not surprised you chose that because... I think a lot of people, there's been a lot of buzz around the Muppet version of the Christmas Carol for a, a couple of years now. Now, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I haven't seen it. You're missing out. I mean, for one, it's Michael Caine and every, like, Michael Caine is the only, like, human actor. Everyone else, like, every other major character is a Muppet. 
But Michael Caine does not like do like the typical like Muppet shtick. Like he is right. like playing, he is playing this like it is like opening night in like a in like a London stage production of a Christmas Carol. And then he's hmm. just like arguing with a giant 20-foot puppet. Hmm. So so scene alone just for that. But you know, it, it's got a fantastic soundtrack. This is like one of those movies that like my family watches every year. It's it's a feel good. Like it's a very good feel good movie. Uh, I highly recommend it, Sean. I feel like what, this is something you and the family would enjoy. What year did this come out? I'm curious. Do you know off the top Ooh. of your head? Uh, I'm wondering if maybe that it's 90s? not. Really? Like 91? You know, I have, I have to look it up. I have Google up. Let me see. Uh, but anyway, what, what's your number five? Um, I, I really want to hear when this movie came out. <laughs> and I'm sorry. 1992. Okay. I'm going to tell you exactly what's happened then. When I, in 1992, I lived with my grandparents in, in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. We had, uh, like, I barely could listen to the radio. We got like one TV station. Um, it makes perfect sense why this one's gone over my head. Like I, I was not aware of the outside world from like 91 to 93. Um, and that's probably the main reason it just wasn't a part of my childhood. So, um, yeah, that's, that's why I missed out on that one. And I probably do need to watch it. My kids really like the Muppets. So I like the Muppets too. Don't get me wrong. I'm like, you know, Muppet show back in the day, you know, fan. So I think it'll be great, but I, I just an, never an OG it. Muppet. What you're OG so, you're like, so you're a Muppet, Muppet. hipster. Yeah, no, I don't know. Like I grew up listening to like, you know, watching the show and I had like all like the, the Muppet tapes and everything. Remember tapes, Nick? Were yeah. You, were you alive when they had cassette tapes? I was. Okay. Well, um, I had all the Muppet tapes and I would listen to those in my, uh, in my Walkman. Funny story. This is the, for the people out there listening. Um, I would, I would listen to my Muppet tapes when you go on family vacations, put my headphones on, sit in the back seat. And I didn't know that other people could hear me singing. So um, I would go pretty hard back there with the Muppets. And uh, I didn't learn for like several states that other people could hear me. So I'm, I'm sure that just there's a lot of bad memories for other people in that car besides me. So, yeah. so I can imagine like dead silence and then you just hear baby Sean in the back seat. The rainbow connection. Yeah, it was it was bad. Um Plus, uh, Mana Mana was happening, and that's just, imagine, I imagine wanting to throw myself out of the car as an adult now, because I couldn't tolerate that. All right, number five for me. The Santa Claus. Okay, I can respect that. Okay, and I'm going to tell you what makes the movie for me is I like the movie, like the premise is good. It's it's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, unique, I think, in Santa Claus um movie situations you know usually what what would happen you, you can just see the uh the movie writers or the screenwriter whatever you want to call them sitting in a room somewhere just throwing out premises like what would happen if santa dies and the guy that kills him has to take over <laughs> his head and they're like wait 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 what if he's gone through a divorce and he's a but you know and it's i i, I like all of these things it's all these fun tropes coming together but the best part for me is how I, I believe I believe Tim Allen's character is named Scott. Scott, how Scott constantly makes fun of his ex-wife's new husband Neil, and <laughs> I just 
because he, you can tell like <laughs> for the most of the entirety of that movie, Scott is, he's the bad father. He's the bad ex-husband. He's just not a great guy. And, you know, clearly Neil just has his crap together and he's a much better person in general, but to Scott Calvin, that's the worst guy there is. And he's going to make fun of him no matter how far down he gets kicked. He's that's the direction he's going to punch in. But then by the end of the movie, we all realize, no, Neil is a loser. It's fine. He's been right the whole time. This guy's actually an awesome person because he's Santa now. And uh, that's what does it for me. I'm not sure why. But. Yeah. The, the whole cut. So you're, what you're saying is the whole custody battle is what really made this Christmas movie. Perfect <laughs> yeah. For yeah. Love it. No, it's yes. <laughs> More child hearings, please. Yeah. Love it. Oh man. Okay. Let's talk. I'm going to give you my number four. Now, I, now this may be the first point of contention because every time I don't mention this one is number one, everybody in proximity gets really upset with me, but I have my reasons and you're welcome to hear them after you're done screaming or crying about it, or strangely, maybe agreeing with me. But number four is going to be National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Okay. I mean, I, I had it higher. Okay. But, but okay, but explain the reasoning. Okay, my reasoning, first off, I, I have a very natural dislike for Chevy Chase. Um, I always yeah. have. And, of course, you know, it's funny – I didn't like him when I was younger and I don't, I didn't know why I didn't like him. Like I remember I saw this movie when it came out in the theaters. Um, and I was like, I mean the, the character is funny, but the guy playing him just seemed like a jerk to me. Um, Chevy, if you're out there listening, um, yep. A lot of people agree, but here's the thing. I learned later as an adult that like literally everyone in Hollywood hates this man. <laughs> Yeah, banned, and so, banned from SNL, I think, for yeah. like, some time, which was like, yeah, he eventually made the show. Yeah, and I like, I remember I, my my mom told me that she thought I was 10 years old. She said, you should start watching Saturday Night Live. Um, it's a it's a really funny show. You'd probably like it. And I don't know that my mom was watching it, but I think she'd heard from someone that it was funny. Now, this was granted, granted, this was in the Chris Farley era when I started watching it. Um, but I would go back and you could, you could buy, um, cassette tapes, VHS tapes. Do you remember those, Nick? Um, yeah. You could buy VHS tapes of, uh, old episodes of Saturday Night Live. And I had acquired quite a few of them from that first season and, uh, seen a lot of Chevy Chase. I mean, it was pretty funny on the show and it, I don't know, I guess the fame got to his head, but that's not the only reason I have a problem with the movie. Let me take, let me take my. I don't know, my somewhat, uh, I don't know, natural hatred toward the man out of it and just say where I think the movie underperforms is that the narrative is fairly loose um, in the sense that I think you can connect with moments like a lot of people have experienced a lot of those things, but it's, it's, it's obviously a National Lampoon movie, but it's very implausible. Um, just to have that situation, I think, from start to finish. Ooh, um, and, I don't know about that. We'll see. Okay, now we're getting we're getting in our feelings about it, and that's good. That's good. This is what we promised the people, Nick. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. To me, some of those vignettes seem very loosely connected. That's that's my my complaint about it. 
That's why I don't have it higher. It's a very funny movie, um, but it just feels more like a series of events that happen as opposed to a series of connected events. I'm going to fight with you on that one coming up in a little bit because I okay, have fine. that ranked higher. And there's a couple of things, the reason why I had it ranked that high that kind of contradict to what you're saying. Sure. Go ahead. Um, but for now, I'm going to give you my number four. This is going to start okay. an entire other debate entirely. Okay. So I know which that. one it is. I know what number four is. It's Die Hard. Yeah, it had to be Die Hard. Yeah, number four is Die Hard. It is number one, absolutely a Christmas movie, and I don't I want to hear it. This isn't like a, like a movie like a movie like you know sometimes it's like you know there's like a movie with like a couple of christmas scenes and you're like oh yeah no like this entire movie revolves around christmas so it is like there is like a christmas themed plot point mm-hmm. everywhere you turn it is absolutely a christmas movie it just happens to be like an action christmas movie right yeah, I mean, so there, there's a, there's my take on why Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Here's why it's number four, though. Uh, it is just like, I think a good mix of like decent action, like what you expect from like an action film, but also like the right, just like the right amount of like kind of humor and sort of like witty, like one-off moments that that make it you know, a fun, they make it a fun watch. Yeah. Because, you know, like if Olympus, like if Olympus has fallen, takes place on Christmas, you wouldn't be like, Oh yeah. Olympus has fallen. Gotta watch that. You know, I think Die Hard, And that's why it's like so endearing to so many people is because there's enough of those moments that it's like a fun watch. Like it's intense, like kind of what you want from a Christmas movie. I mean, an action movie, I guess you don't want your Christmas movies to be intense. Um, but but yeah, but it's like the right amount of like humor and kind of fun stuff that makes it a fun watch. Yeah. And, you know, your argument that I agree with that it's a Christmas movie, you know, I mean, at, at its heart, it's a Christmas movie. It, like you said, it's the plot points that revolve around Christmas that make it one. And it's like just like I'd say, you take a movie like Con Air which I mean, a masterpiece of cinema, number one, um, that that's a father son movie. It's just like field of dreams. Right. Yeah. I mean, isn't, you know, I mean, yeah, there's, there's criminals and they're on an airplane and there's an airplane crash, but it's, what's it about? It's about a guy trying to get home to his son. Right. Just like, just like field of dreams is about a guy trying to reconnect with his dad. I mean, just because it's an action movie doesn't that's take away the fact that it's Wait, what? I said, and that's where the similarities end. Nope, they're exactly the same movie. Um, pretty sure. No difference. Same thing. 100%. But, no, I, I'm joking, obviously. But, yeah, I, I, I don't have a problem with people calling that a Christmas movie. And maybe you've just gotten lucky with me. Maybe other people have very strong feelings about it. I don't have it on my list. You might have a problem with that. But I have to view... Christmas movies, I have young children, so I have to think about what I can watch with them. Fair. I feel but, like that's fair. Uh, so that's why I transitioned to my number three, probably something you can watch with your kids a little bit easier than Die Hard. A staple that has been a part of the Morgan family household for years, dating back to when my mom was a child. A Charlie Brown Christmas. 
Okay. Is, and, is that a, is I that don't a know movie? if it counts as a movie or not. If I need another, th- another number three, let me know. I'll have to think about it. Um, but it, it's, I guess a Christmas special. I don't know. It's, it's my list. I'm putting it at number three. Um, you know, and it's just like, again, it's fun. And I think that's kind of where my theme goes is just like, what's fun to watch. Um, and you know, Charlie Brown, it's like an institution. I, I think it's just when you look back at like how timeless it is, you, you know, everybody knows like the theme from that, you know, everybody yeah. kind of knows like Linus's soliloquy. It's it's just it's just kind of one of those things where it like withstands the test of time, and I think that's why it's it's high on mine. Yeah, and you know, I I, I did a little bit of research while you were talking. Um, it's really like a you know twenty five minute special, but I mean, is it a movie? I mean, does it have a complete narrative? Is it start to finish? Yeah, probably. So I, I would say it's fine to call it a Christmas movie. I mean, you know, honestly, if you're looking, if I'm looking at it through my lens of things I can watch with my kids, a shorter runtime is actually beneficial because it can definitely hold their attention. Right. Um, so I again, I don't have that one on my list which I think is fine. Um, but I, I would definitely agree that that's a, it's a quality one. It's one I remember watching when I was younger. Um, and it had been around to come out in 1965, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it came out in 65. So, you know, I mean, to, to me, that's, that's a classic. That's one that a lot of people have watched. It's accessible to kids that that's a really good thing because, you know, I, I, kind of at that situation i've got a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old and i think i think we've just come into the year that maybe the 12-year-old can handle national lampoon's christmas vacation but i ain't showing it to the seven-year-old but i'd be more than fine to show either one of them charlie brown the second we get off of this this recording you know what i mean i think it yes it passes the, that metric for me as well um so yeah i think i think that's a good call not a lot of drama yet not a lot of drama yet I think we're okay. Number three. Oh, okay. That's where it might get ugly. I don't know. Um, You know, I mentioned this movie a lot. I talk about it a lot. Big fan of this movie for a lot of reasons. Um, I mention it around other people and most people go, what? They've never heard of it. They don't know that it's a real movie. And it upsets me because this played such a pivotal role in my childhood for a variety of reasons that I feel like this is definitely one of the best Christmas movies of all time. Um, and you know, it's interesting more, Nick, I'm going to say this, you know, I, I understood the movie as a child, but I feel the movie as an adult. Okay. I really do. You know what movie it is? It's jingle all the way. Ooh. Okay. I assume maybe that's number two or number one on your list. And if it is, I'm sorry. It is not. Um, I did not have it on my list. <laughs> See, no uh, one does. Why in a second? But go ahead and and people like to sleep on Jingle All the Way. I don't. I, I don't know. And I think for me, there's 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 the movie itself, which <sighs> the movie's good. Don't get me wrong. I I was I'm, I've always been a big fan of stand-up comedy and I always liked Sinbad. So Sinbad in a movie was just kind of a win-win for me. Plus the character he plays, I think is hilarious. Um, and you definitely like it. What's hard to me is like, (laughs) you're not supposed to 
real, I don't think you're supposed to really like either of the main characters in this movie, but you realize that um, you understand them at some point, if that makes sense. You know, I, I, yeah. I, it, it's odd, but Schwarzenegger's character is, is good. I, I like the, uh, ha, the father who has to actually go and get a present that he was supposed to get and thought he had taken care of just to realize it's not that simple. I can kind of identify with that uh, for a variety of reasons. Things I've been yelled at for before by a lot of people. But at hopefully the same time, what? So hopefully not this year. Hopefully you got your shopping done way before. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. I no, um, no. Anyway, but the thing <laughs> is with, you know, with, with Myron Sinbad's character, you know, he's just a dad trying to do the best he can for his kid. And that's, to me, you've just got a lot of interesting characters in there. And plus, I, I think what's cool to me is you've got Schwarzenegger, who at, at the time is like the biggest action movie star in the world. You're talking about Planet Hollywood era Schwarzenegger, right? Yeah. Um, you know, big time. And uh, he's <laughs> he's playing a character who's searching after a toy that is more more than likely based on a character he would play in a movie. Um, and then when he ends up taking on that role... It just makes, I think, the payoff so much better. I think if I show it to my kids, which they haven't seen it, but when I show it to my kids, that's going to go right over their heads. Like they're going to have no idea that he's that he's the Terminator and and all this awesome stuff. But um, you know, those I think that that kind of impact is a little bit different for those of us who grew up in that era. So um, I just I just really like it as a movie. But then the part of it, and I say it played a pivotal role in my childhood. Here's why. Huge Conan O'Brien fan over here on this end of the microphone, right? And uh, there was there was this skit that he would do um, early on in the in the Conan O'Brien show where he would have celebrity guests on who weren't actually there, and they would just kind of do the green screen with their mouth and put them up on the TV and have someone else in in the back. You know, did you ever see yeah. this? The whole okay. Martha Stewart shtick, where it's like, yeah, yeah. Well, they did it with Schwarzenegger and he would always talk about jingle all the way. Um, and uh, you know, they had like the gap in his teeth was like a little, like a piece of black tape or something they stuck on the actor's teeth and it would move around and they couldn't keep it in the right place. So yeah. he's trying to fix it with his fingers. You can see his hand in the way. It's, I don't know. It was one of those skits that was endlessly funny to me. So it's, you know, the fact that it kind of got lined up with that in my mind was really good. And then uh, we, we used to have to do a holiday film um, spoof, I guess, for, for work. Each department had to make their own holiday movie. And the time I finally got to be in charge of that for, for the English department, I chose that we would parody Jingle All the Way. Um, and it worked out really well. I wasn't in the film at all. I was just behind the camera. Uh, me and another guy wrote it and, and filmed it, and I did all the editing. But we actually won um, Best Picture that year, um, as well as our two actors got Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, which really it should have gone to both of them for Best Actor because they were both incredible. But it was all because, Nick, of the magic and majesty of Jingle All the Way. So that's that's the if, – if they ever get a Academy Award, that's going to be the uh, the spearhead. Where it all began. Yeah, I, I would I would say so, um, you know. But I I think 
I don't know. Just and maybe if you take the Conan O'Brien thing out of it, I don't enjoy the movie as much. But to me, I don't know. It just it made it so much better. Should I move on to number two? We probably should because we're running really low on time. Well, I mean, no one's listening at this point anyway, right? Uh, our parents. <laughs> Your parents? Okay. Yeah. Um, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Morgan. Um, number two for me, Home Alone. Um, keep it real brief here. That movie came out when I was the right age to see it, I guess you could say. Everything that happened in it was endlessly hilarious to me. And, uh, and this will be the last thing I'll say about it before I turn it over to you. Um, there's a scene in the movie Dogma by Kevin Smith, which I don't know if anybody's even seen it, but they're, they are talking to the muse, like the muse. Mm-hmm. And she makes the comment about being responsible for nine of the top 10 highest grossing movies ever. And uh, I think she says, makes the comment that the one she wasn't responsible for was home alone because that guy sold his soul to the devil. And to me, that's hilarious. Jesus. <laughs> well, you took that to well, because it was twice. so successful because it was so successful. Like, yeah, I can do a lot, but I can't do that. I just thought, sure. It was funny. Uh, Plus I like, I like that children's movie being associated with a soul sold to the devil. That's funny. Yeah. The only, my, here's my thing about home alone. And like, uh, it's more like I watch it every year. Like I for sure watch it every year. Um, I'm not saying it's bad. I get frustrated with the robbers. Yeah. That's the thing where it's like, I'm like, this should be way easy. It's like, yeah, you're not rooting against the small seven-year-old child to get his ass kicked by Joe Pesci. But, you know, at the same time, it feels like how much easier would this movie be with like competent robbers? It'd be like, huh, this door handles hot. Maybe I should let go of it instead of just holding on for like 10 seconds at a time. Um, so but maybe, that's just saying, me being, maybe that's just me being cranky. You don't, you're saying you don't like madcap hijinks. Is that what it is? Well, that's how I was going to go back to jingle all the way. Whoa. Okay. Well, I mean, you said you made the same point about um, God. What was the first movie on the list? Which one? God, this seems like forever ago. Um, it was. We've been talking about this for a long time. What was your number five? Santa National Claus? Lampoon. Oh, what was I saying about that? That's different than what I tell me. Well, no, you're me. just saying how it just felt like you know, like kind of the one-off scenes like didn't go together, and it's kind of like not believable. I kind of feel that about uh, Home Alone, where it's like, mm, yeah, no, you're okay. for this kid, but it's just like there's like so much of this stuff where it's like this would never happen. Right. I think I think maybe you misunderstood what I was saying about about National Lampoons. I'm, I'm talking about um, the the whole like. I'm going to have the entire family over. And, oh, wait, you're right. Yeah. The kid get left alone at home doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Yeah, can you feel like you did I just talk you did I just talk you out of a number uh oh, well. I, I don't know. Maybe the kid getting left alone at home is more plausible to me than than having everybody over for Christmas. I don't know. Well hey, number number two, let's go back to that because my number two is Christmas vacation. 
Okay. And here's the thing. That is super relatable because I have seen some of this happen firsthand. Okay. Uh, where it's like, you know, everybody's got those, you know, I feel like especially like big Southern or Midwestern families, you know, everybody knows like there's gatherings where it's like, you know, you're, you and your parents are hosting. And then it's like, you know, all the brothers and sisters, the aunts and uncles, the cousins, you know, the aunts, the, you know, the grandparents and everybody kind of all in the same place at one time. And the kids are causing a chaos running around and, you know, the, the in-laws are being like, well, that's not how we used to cook this. And, uh, you know, I think there's like so much of that. And it's like all of the same thing. It's like, oh, you're trying to get like your presents done and your shopping done. And it's like kind of just like a whole like giant perfect storm of like, oh, crappery that that it's like it's like believable. And it's like, yeah, it is. It is a little mad cat. Like, you know, there's there's probably a couple of things that you're like also like, well, this would. This seems like a little far fetched, but at the same time, it's like just believable enough that it's like, yeah, this this is my family. Okay, I I, I can see what you're saying. I guess I guess maybe the times when we've had when I was growing up, when we had everybody over like that, it was those years when I lived with my grandparents and um, it was a very big family. But everybody came to my grandparents house, which is where I lived at the time. So it was for me, it was like. I don't know if we were causing chaos or not. You know, there were like 25 of us. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if we were, we had enough land around us that it wasn't that big of a deal and we could all just go upstairs and nobody wanted to come up there with us. So, um, there's probably the, a reason. Uh, well, but at least we could all just go upstairs and we all got along pretty well. 99% of the time. Um, so I would just assume all the adults were getting along downstairs. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. But there was not typically not a lot of arguing over, you know, how, how this is how we used to do things. And that's not how we cook this or that. Maybe I'm just uh, remembering it differently than it was, though. Maybe it was just the, uh, you know, the good old days for me. Nostalgia. All right. What's it, what's number one, Sean? Whoa. Whoa. I thought you had to give your number one. And do you I had want to, give to go mine. first? Yeah. My number one is Elf. Okay. Okay. Waiting to gauge your reaction on that. Um, my that my think... number one is also Elf. All right. Yeah. All right. Look at us. I feel I feel like this is just like the perfect movie, you know? Like, yeah. Where it's just like there, there's not a thing wrong with it. Like the plot is like really good and fun. Uh, the character development is fantastic. Like the characters individually, like are are great. Like even like the one off character, like the the giant guy in the in the mail room who winds up uh, getting <laughs> yeah. accidentally drunk off quote unquote syrup with with yeah. out, and you know it's just like a lot of like a it, overall good cast. Um, Peter Dinklage maybe like the best like I guess you call it like a retro cameo. Like, yeah. like a big role before a lot of people knew who he was. Yeah. I mean, it's just perfect. It's a perfect film all around. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to say this and 
take take the film side out of it. You you described the film perfectly for me. There's nothing I can add to it. But here's here's the thing for me when it comes to this movie. Um, number one, first and foremost, I saw this movie in the theater when it came out back in 2003 when I was on a date. Oh, yeah. It was uh, it was actually the first date I went on with my now wife. Oh, um, so yeah, I know, I know. How sweet. So yeah, and it was it, mar- it was our uh, it was our first date. It was December twentieth, two thousand three. Uh, we went to see Elf. Um, we were kind of thinking uh, we'd been talking to each other for a little bit and decided we were going to go on a date and we. Decided we'd go see that, and then if if things were weird from there and wasn't working out, we could go our separate ways. But everything was really good, and we ended up uh, going and walking around the Opryland Hotel and um, talking all all evening long. And then you know, I I drove back to Kentucky. She went she went back home, and I ended up going on a few more dates. And then we dated long distance for three years. And then we got married, hmm. and we've been married what will be fifteen years at the end of this month. So, um, you know, movie holds a very special place for me because during that movie was the first time we held hands. Oh, okay. <sighs> oh, you're going to say like you were making out on uh, the back of the theater. That would be weird. Um, yeah, probably cause there's also yeah. a bunch of children present. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention to those kids. Um, I was only paying I attention mean, to fair. her. I would... And the movie. Yes, but that's that. You know, so we've always um, we go we ever we just watched Elf before you and I started recording this with our with our children as we do every year, and uh, we, we went to Opryland yesterday as well. So, um, so it's very nice. Sweet. Yeah. So basically, I tried to I picked Elf and tried to go like all Roger Ebert and break down the compositions of the film, and you're out here just like oh yeah, that was just an. Um, is the spark that sparked my marriage? Uh, out here holding hands on the first date, like a yeah. an unhinged maniac. Yes, as as one is. <laughs> it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong; I love the movie. It's a great movie. I love Will Ferrell. Makes me laugh. Yeah. Uh, also, Ed Asner. Yeah. Top three movie Santa ever. I would say within the top three. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's in who's that your, conversation for sure. Uh, who's your number one? I don't know if I'd... Okay, well, I'd, I'd have to go back and think of... Uh, <laughs> we don't have uh, another hour. We don't have another it. hour. Maybe this is like another debate for another day. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I would say uh, just Miracle on 34th Street. Never seen it. Is it good? The original one, yeah. Uh, I never seen it. Can't remember the gentleman who plays that. Um, yeah, that's a that's a different debate for another day. But Ed Asner's up there. Yeah, I agree. I think I think he plays a really good Santa. Yes, uh, like him a lot. That was that was quite the robust discussion. It was good. It, it was, was good. good. Uh, Sean, uh, would you yes. like to tell the people where they can find your work? Well, number one, of course, you can always find me at uh, www.onthefourcheck.com. You can also find Nick there. If you want to see what I have to say on the Twitter, which is mostly 99% 
Predators Hockey Related. That's uh, my my handle is at S-C-S-O-T-F. That's Sean C. Smith on the forecheck is what that stands for, if you didn't know. Uh, of course, I'm also on a podcast called On the Preds with Alex Doherty of A to Z Sports. And I'm also one of the renegades of Puck with Crazy Charlie and the rest of the gang. A lot of, you're a popular man. Well, I don't know about popular. I'm just in a lot of places. Yeah, well, still. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Nick Morgan. You can find my work at onthefourcheck.com. Follow me on Twitter at underscore NSMorgan. Or uh, listen to me every morning on the Locked on Predators podcast. I do that with our other on the forecheck colleague, Miss Ann Kimmel. We have a lot of fun. Lots of lively discussion has been uh, going on here in the past little bit. So, uh, yeah, be sure to listen to that every morning. I have enjoyed it, and I enjoy listening to Ann as well. And it sounds like you're a pretty popular man too there, Nick Morgan. Well, I'm doing the best I can, So, which I guess is can do. That's all we can do. Yeah. Well, that is going to do it for us uh, here at the On the Forecheck podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support all season long. If there's anything specific you want us to talk about, any questions or anything like that, send us a line. Uh, tweet us at the Forecheck Pod or at On the Forecheck. Let us know. Until then, we will see you next time. <laughs>